Hello everyone and welcome once again to Ultimate Motorcycling's weekly podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. In this week's first segment, senior editor Nick DeSena tells us all about the Aprilia RS660 Trofeo. The fabled Italian racing mark has produced a track-only version of its excellent street bike, and Nick gave it a good thrashing around Laguna Seca recently. Even if you're not a track junkie, you'll find this to be an interesting take on an already really good machine. In the second segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with teen racing sensation Kayla Yakov. Kayla made a name for herself in the smaller classes as she was growing up, but having just turned 16 a few weeks ago, she was able to move up a class and race 600 Supersport for Titler's Racing at the last Moto America race of this year. In case you're thinking this may be hype, she finished on the podium in third place, having started the race 13th on the grid. That's a heck of an accomplishment for a first race in the most competitive class of them all. TJ chats with Kayla about growing up and where it all started. So, from all of us here at Motos and Friends, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Yeah, the Aprilia RS660 Trofeo, so that's their fully race-prepped version of the you know, recently released, we'll say, RS660 uh, middleweight super sport bike. And that is a parallel twin-powered motorcycle. And when that bike came out, it, you know, in my mind, it really broke the mold with the sort of middleweight sport bike class because in it, you had things like the long-standing Suzuki SV650, which is a naked bike. However, the SV650 has been known and is well-regarded as a more than competent track bike. Um, around the same time period, you also had rumblings of the Yamaha YZF-R7 coming to fruition. And then shortly afterwards, it was released to the public. So the RS660 really, again, breaks that mold because what it delivers to the consumer as a base product is a fairly high-end and high-tech middleweight motorcycle. So it derives all of its uh, inspiration, we'll say, uh, from the RSV4 superbikes, but boils that down into a much more approachable package. Um, and with that, you you have all of the rider aids that come with it. So corner sensitive ABS, uh, lean angle sensitive traction control, wheeling control, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a very high tech motorcycle in that regard, but in a middleweight class, which typically until then, really didn't get to see a lot of those features that were reserved for that higher bar. Now with the RS660 Trofeo, which translates directly to trophy, you're seeing um, a race version of that. That's quite literally a turnkey race bike, despite the fact that it does not have an actual key anymore. Um, <laughs> so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Okay, so the Trofeo is a track-only bike. It is not available for the street at all. Correct. You know, whether or not it can be registered is something that I'm not entirely sure about. Um, I would need to double-check that because in the past, uh, <clears throat> and maybe for listeners that are a bit younger, we'll say, um, 
manufacturers did used to sell race bikes to the public and they were not registrable vehicles. In more recent years, that trend has really sort of uh, died off, we'll say. Um, you know, you can think back to when uh, Honda, Yamaha, uh, you know, Suzuki, they were straight up selling their race bikes to the general racing public, if not pros, but club racers and et cetera, et cetera. You know, back in the two-stroke days, you know, think of the, the Yamaha TZ250. That's what comes to mind in that sense. Um, and Aprilia was part of that that fight as well. Uh, they were doing stuff like the, the Aprilia RS250 Challenge Cup, um, which was based on their super popular Aprilia RS250 street bike. Two-stroke, yeah, fantastic little bike. Yeah, exactly. Um, more recently, Aprilia did the four-stroke uh, RS250 SP, um, which is, it, it really served the same purpose. It, it's, but even more pointed than than some of those other bikes uh because at the time you know the the older the the early 2000s rs250 challenge cup that that appealed to adults and things like that when that class was still very strong um the current gen uh, rs250 sp appeals to uh younger riders that are trying to get into racing um and really creating a bike for a spec class you know, we'll say um but that, that's a separate point. Um, you know, the RS660 Trofeo, it is a fully built race bike. I mean, from the dealership floor that you pick it up on, it is a completely prepped race bike. You don't have to do a single thing to it except add safety wire where the rules may require it. Um, okay. And, you know, MSRP is a $21,000. So there you go. And that's kind of the 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 meat and potatoes of it in a nutshell, we'll say. Okay. Is the bike only available to licensed racers or can any member of the public just sort of walk into a showroom and, and order one? Yeah. As as long as you, you have the money, you can go into your local Aprilia dealer, order one up. Uh, they are not made in massive volumes like the RS660 is, obviously. Sure. But... Uh, your dealer should be able to facilitate the order of one of these things and then it'll show up and you need to get it or you can get it, we'll say. And that, that is a good, good question because when we were referencing some of the older um, Japanese competition use motorcycles, you actually had to be a licensed racer in some of those cases. Um, and you may have needed to have connections as well. So that's a whole yeah. thing. This is a consumer facing product for the racetrack exclusively. All of the literature that comes with a bike explicitly says and and says in numerous, numerous times that is a race only vehicle. Um, and there's plenty of reasons for that from emissions compliance to uh, DOT compliance. I mean, it it does not have lights. It does not have turn signals. It has a full racing exhaust. It has modifications. This is a race bike. And that's kind of why I'm so excited about this thing. Right. Okay. Essentially, it's not just a race bike. It's a track bike. So you don't have to be a racer to buy it. So there are plenty of track day guys out there that, that can buy one of these and they've got a perfect track day purpose-built bike made for them. Um, and they may never, may never actually enter a race, but this is a perfect bike for that. 
Exactly. Yeah. So you, you don't have to be a licensed club racer. You don't have to be an aspiring Moto America racer. You can just be a guy that guy or gal that prefers to ride on the racetrack or wants a bike that is going to be built from the track from day one. And that to me is what the crux of this whole bike is because having built race bikes myself, it is a, a punishment that I would not bestow upon my worst enemy. <laughs> transforming a street bike into a track bike or a race bike you know that's kind of two sides of the same coin is an arduous process especially with modern motorcycles um uh, i know when you were racing you had to convert uh fair bikes on your own yep that said things are a little bit more annoying now so it, it is just an absolute, to put a pin in it, an absolute pain in the ass. And I bet there's someone out there that enjoys that. You know, everyone has their kink, I'm not going to shame them. Uh, I'm just not into it. And I stare at this thing and go, wow, it's $21,000. Okay. That's a good chunk of chunk of change right there. However, if I were to collect all these parts on my own, put them on the bike, buy the bike, do this, do that. And all the time and effort suddenly that looks like a pretty good value for this hyper niche product. Right. And, you know, then, then I guess we can start getting into the, the nitty gritty of what is actually different. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, starting with the motor, I'm really rather expecting you to tell me that it's got this hyper tweaked motor that puts out some enormous horsepower and it's going to just tear your arms off as soon as you hit the gas on the straight. Is that true? No. <laughs> <laughs> So this is this is one of those things where um, I guess we do need to kind of explain this. You know, if you build up a motor, you start decking the heads, changing cams, uh, doing other modifications, going even further into the engine, um, you know, updating con rods, pistons, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You are going to be producing a significantly greater amount of horsepower than you were before. That requires greater maintenance. Uh, yes. You're going to be running race fuel ostensibly because now you're increasing compression, you know, by messing with, um, you know, squish and things like that. Sure. It makes engines unreliable, whether we are talking about uh, a race engine built from this brand or another brand, it, the, the service, service intervals listed in that original manufacturer's specification go completely out of the window. Yeah. Um, Race engines are great. They're also, again, an enormous pain in the ass. So unless you have the technical know-how to do it yourself or the money to do it, it becomes a bit of a bear. Um, that said, at the club racing level, at the track day level, all you're really going to need is a pipe, an air filter, and a good flash, which is exactly what this bike has. Okay. So you're you're looking at a bike that's basically putting horsepower out around in that that sort of 110 region uh, when it's all said and done. So it is that parallel twin engine. We know it from the RS660. And essentially think of that same exciting parallel twin just amplified in every regard. Um, obviously, we weren't able to dyno it when we wrote it at Laguna Seca um, about a month and a half ago. But knowing the RS660 engine pretty well at this point, I can say that it's essentially just bumped up you know the step up it's tough to put a number on it really but it just has more lines it has more mid-range it has more run out at the top 
And I think that's kind of what struck me the most is that it just fills out the power band overall. Now, the last time we talked about the RS660 and and the Tuono 660, for that matter, we mentioned that there is a pretty noticeable dip. There's a flat spot, yeah. From about, you know, five to for about a, a grand or so in the RPM range. And I don't want to say that that characteristic is completely removed with the flash, but it's to the point where it's a non-issue because you the, the power distribution is just so much more full on this engine. Um, and really that can be a characteristic of the motor anyway, you know, an engine can just make its power in a particular way. Um, you know, you think about two stroke engines, for example, uh, they tend to make their, their power up high, it, no matter how much you modify them, it's not going to suddenly create the same amount of torque that uh, a different type of engine configuration would. It's just, that's inherent to that, that particular engine. You know, comparatively, inline fours, you have to do a, a lot of different tweaking to kind of change their their inherent characteristics, which is, you know, high revving, high high horsepower stuff. Um, you know, in this case, I would say that that flat spot is completely negated, although that that sort of that sniff is there. And then also taking it further, looking at at guys and gals that have modified these things to the hilt at this point you know, changing velocity stacks. So you're really changing the way that the air gets into the motor that absolutely smooths out the power curve. Just, just makes it this nice, you know, super progressive thing, but that's getting into the weeds talking about what's actually on this bike. So you have an, a full SC project, uh, system. Um, and and with that, you also have a sprint air filter. And the full system on the bike is sweet. I mean, <laughs> it, not only are you saving weight, for one, but it it sounds, well, pretty, pretty damn amazing. I'm just going to right. put it there. Um, you know, it, it like I mentioned before, the flash, the it all sort of fleshes out the power band and really adds a lot to it. Um, you know, kind of heading down the front straight at Laguna Seca, you know, you're clicking through the gearbox and you're like, okay, you know, that's all well and good. And the, the, the overrun at the top is definitely, definitely more prominent as in, you know, the thing really continues to have legs, the deeper you go into the revs. Whereas on the stock bike, I don't want to say things fall off because it's definitely not that sensation. It's just not as potent. Um, Likewise, the, the low-end torque is definitely there, combined with the fact that we rode this not too long after the, the racetrack surface at Laguna Seca was, was redone. Uh, if you guys watched the Moto America round from July, there were a lot of complaints about you know the track not being bed in yet, which is a, a thing for new surfaces. It just needs rubber to get into that aggregate, create grip. Um, by the time that I rode it, there was an enormous amount of grip on that racetrack and ostensibly there still is, and there still will be for the next couple of years, probably, um, you know, to give you an idea coming out of turn two at Laguna, that's a turn where you really can kind of pivot the bike and get on the gas hard. And it's a very, very exit, uh, priority corner. Um, and you know, the R660, uh, it's got some <laughs> dog in it, you know, getting on the gas, 
kind of just where I normally would, that that rich torque is just picking up the front end a lot earlier than I'm used to riding, you know, the stock RS660 by comparison. Um, you know, and the fact that I, I was also running uh, uh, Prelli Diablo Superbike slicks. So uh, I had an enormous amount of grip from the slicks. And then, of course, an enormous amount of grip from the track. We also had an enormous amount of grip from the mechanical uh, grip that the chassis can generate. And then you got this engine that just mm, super solid low end, great mid range. And then the thing just pushes through. And so it really highlights the fact that this is, you know, an, a good step above the stock engine and you're not exactly doing a whole lot to it. It's, you know, a pipe and a flash and a filter. And it's like, you know, I, I, I'm a big fan of the RS660 platform. Uh, you know, I think that engine and the MT-07 engine, you know, they kind of do something pretty special. Granted, those are at radically different price points, but, you know, um, and yeah, that's pretty good. And then another another thing to to note with the Trofeo in particular is that it uses a different ECU, a uh, different Morelli ECU. So outside of uh, the different flash just for the uh, fuel injection, et cetera, et cetera, the updated ECU uh, accommodates just completely different settings. So the TC algorithms, um, engine braking strategies, and things like that are all updated for a more racetrack oriented uh, setting. Uh, to that end, you have less engine braking overall, according to the literature, uh, which I would say tracks well. Obviously, I didn't do a back-to-back -back comparison or anything like that, but um, I, I would say that that's that rings true. Um, and then, you know, of course, some of the other things that were changed, uh, just as far as I know from from you know looking in the literature, is a uh, you know, advancing. Um, uh, timing and and fuel injection strategies and really getting into the weeds with the beeps and boops that I don't totally understand. So, you know, that's kind of that in a nutshell. Um, and I would say, you know, because the ECU is specifically calibrated for racetrack use, that clears another hurdle when you're converting a stock bike to a race bike, because, um, you know, it's taking care of basically everything at that point. Um, stuff that you would have to do on your own and that you, you know, would have to source with aftermarket providers to do, it's just doing it for you. So it's disabling emissions equipment. It's disabling um, the immobilizer, for example, the anti-theft device. Uh, it's also allowing you to um, uh, fit a 18060 rear profile tire on there, uh, which is a pretty common slick size. Uh, again, everything is really just made for the racetrack or going racing. So, again, that's that's one of those little little things that that sort of sneaks in there. Um, and then related to the updated electronics, um, you know, the ABS is 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 still still there. Yes, I would imagine with this uh, with this race ECU on it. I mean, one of the one of the pictures we've got is of a very purposeful looking left handlebar with uh with the five you know cool looking moto gp style buttons on it giving you you know pit limiters and you know lap timers and all kinds of things so so obviously this this ecu is is custom made for for the racetrack yeah 
And it's not entirely clear based on your first kind of uh, impression with the motorcycle because it still uses the standard stock dash that's found on any 21660 or RS660. Still uses the same uh, nomenclature for its its race section of the uh, of the menu system, and you can actually go back to the street thing too. It's just by default it, it's set up to go into the 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 track settings with a lap timer and the adjustable uh, maps and things like that. The buttons are a lot more purpose built. Obviously, those are just off the shelf race kit that you'd find on any you know, properly built racing machine. Um, I'm absolutely certain that half the paddock, you know, whether it's Moto2 or or World Superbike or uh, club racing, whatever, I guarantee you're going to find a bunch of the same uh, buttons and things like that on different bikes because I've seen those on broadcast plenty <laughs> of times. Yeah. Um, related to that, and if you guys keep looking at the photos, you're going to notice that a lot of the... Um, riding position components so your clip-on handlebars your rear sets crash protection things of that nature are going to be made by spider racing parts of italy hence the little spider laser etched doodad um so that's gonna that that's an important thing too so race bikes we we need adjustability we need to be able to change everything based on the particular rider because arthur you're you're your size differently than me your inseam is differently than mine your leg your arm length yada 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 your personal right. preference is just different than mine different than hers different than his yeah you get the point sure um so key thing here is the upper triple is a new triple clamp from uh spider racing parts of italy and it replaces the sort of faux clip-ons that are integrated into the upper triple of the stock RS660. So now we have a more aggressive riding position because we are running truly, uh, you know, track oriented clip on handlebars. So we're canted forward a little bit more. We get a little bit more feedback out of that really sweet trick twin spar aluminum chassis. Um, it does th make things a little bit more risky but I'm not going to be sitting in traffic on this thing. So I don't really care mm -hmm. with that. You also have the adjustable rear sets. Uh, weirdly enough, there's a, a, well, I don't know if he's an employee, but he definitely works with Aprilia a whole lot. We'll call him an employee for the sake of this conversation, Dan Trotty, who, you know, well, um, and he basically rolled this thing out. He had written it before me. And luckily enough, we kind of, have have some of the same preferences in terms of ergos. So for me, pretty spot on right out of the gate. Um, I just went back to standard street shift and you can run the thing both in GP shift and standard street shift and still maintain the quick shifter and auto blipper. So that's really cool. You don't need to do anything too crazy. You just need to recalibrate it once it's flipped. Um, and then of course, there's the, the race bodywork. Cruciata, Cruciata. I'm just going to keep saying that because it's fun. Cruciata race <laughs> bodywork. Um, you know, basically race bodywork, the main difference is it's lighter. It's repairable in most cases because it's usually made of some sort of carbon fiber slash fiberglass uh, composite. It's much thinner and it, it has all of the damping material that a standard bodywork or set of bodywork would have. 
So it's far more utilitarian. In this case, the, the, the bodywork looks like it fits together nicely. Everything has a good seam. There's nothing unsightly about it. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we often forget when talking about race bikes and bodywork is everyone tends to come away with like, oh, you get so much more feedback. You get so much more feedback from the bike, the this, the suspension, blah, blah, blah. That's all true. In my opinion, race bodywork gives you more feedback as well. Because you have to remember, you're now just sitting on a tiny sliver of foam directly connected to a piece of carbon fiber slash fiberglass stuff that is directly connected to the chassis. No damping material, no, no extra padded material, no creature comforts, boom, straight feedback. You can hear, you know, the first time you put race body work on a bike, you can like hear stuff from the engine that you never did before. And it takes a minute to get used to it. So... You know, that's something that I I, I did want to kind of zero in on because it seems innocuous, but it's it's very much there. At any rate, so we got the adjustable ergos from uh, Spider Racing Parts. We have the crash protection. Um, you know, you have uh, engine and, and clutch covers stuff. You have water pump cover. Um, you, know, you have a brake lever guard, you know, things of that nature. Um, like I mentioned before. The only thing that you're going to need to enter a club race or even a pro race and, and even more hardcore track day organizations will sometimes require this is safety wire. So, um, you know, depending on the club you're racing in, look at their rules, see what they need and go from there. And then, you know, either drill out the bolts or get some sweet titanium ones that are already pre-drilled. Um, I would advise the pre-drilled method because it's less effort. And drilling stuff sucks and you just break bits and it's miserable. Yeah. <laughs> so don't, um, don't even waste your time. No, it's awful. It is. Unless like you actually can't buy it and you're doing the racer thing where you're doing it the night before, uh, you actually need to race in that case, do drill them and then be angry about it. And just make sure you've got several small bits on, on hand break. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like you can either smoke, I don't know, like four or five little bits because you're going to break <laughs> right. them and overheat them or bend them. Or you can just buy <laughs> the bolts and everyone's like, oh, this is too expensive. <laughs> well, yeah. that was like a painful five or seven hours of my life that I'll never get back. So, yes, I think we've all gone through it. I certainly have. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. you know, okay, cool. Um, you know, the other thing I did mention the ABS. And one thing that's in the literature that's a little fuzzy. Uh, that I do need to clarify on is the ABS pump is still there because the ABS module needs to be there for, for the rest of the electronics to function properly. This bike and many other bikes, its electronic systems are reliant on each other. So you can't just remove the ABS pump and then somehow flash it out of the system. That said, right. they did get around this in a clever way. The brake lines are upgraded to a... I believe it's Hell, H-E-L is the company uh, that does the brake lines. You need to double check that. Regardless, there's steel braided brake lines, just the stuff you need for the racetrack, track days, club racing, whatever. And now the, the stuff is directly routed to the caliper. So master cylinder, caliper does not go master cylinder, ABS pump, caliper. So you're getting better feedback overall. Um, okay. Does negate the ABS according to the literature 
that said, when I ran this bike at Laguna Seca, I was running it in the the least intrusive ABS setting the entire time. And I was also running slicks. So I never had any ABS issues. That's something that the Italian to English translation is sort of loosey goosey on. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that's how these things are, baby. <laughs> you can only imagine the, the cool English that came out of buying some of those <laughs> Japanese race bikes back in the day. Um, so at any rate, that's kind of covering the, the core components in, in a nutshell. Uh, you know, you're still running the same calipers, but there's better feedback. Um, and then there's the suspension. You know, we have Olin Schalk with uh, uh, Andriani uh, cartridge fork up front, both fully adjustable. Now the, the stock bike is fully adjustable if I'm remembering my spec sheet properly. Um, however, it does solve a pretty annoying little thing about the stock bike. The, the stock shock is adjustable. The problem is when you have to get to uh, compression, you have to pull off the seat and this little side panel to start adjusting stuff because the way the stock shock is, it's kind of buried up into the, um, the tail section a little bit. Um, and if you look at the shock itself, it's normal routing goes that way anyway. So you can, you can see the spring sort of becomes recessed into the bodywork. That's not totally unusual at all for, you know, a lot of different motorcycles. However, because this has a remote reservoir on the shock, the Olin's unit, first, that's going to allow better cooling. Uh, you're going to get a much more consistent uh, sort of um, feel from the shock because it's not going to be as uh, as affected by by heat. Yeah, you know, as as the oil heats up in your shock and or fork, it thins out. And that can change how the bike behaves from lap to lap to lap to lap. Um, and that's why remote reservoirs exist because it actually puts some distance, like physical distance between the shock and the its, its reservoir. So it, it actually allows the, the oil to cool. It's kind of a prickly nerdy little thing, but that's literally why it does it. Outside of the fact that it just looks real cool, that's the actual engineering reason behind it. So. At any rate, you have the adjustable suspension. It solves the the issue of having to dive into the bike and you know mess with stuff, uh, which is like my only true complaint about the RS660. But whatever. Um, now you just adjust stuff like I can just reach it with my hand. So, anyway, continuing on, uh, the shock is extremely high quality. Um, getting a baseline setup, I worked with. Uh, JJ from Suspension Matters. He happened to be at uh, the Aprilia Racer Days event that we were attending for this uh, test. And, you know, JJ is a guy that I've known for a good long while. We, you know, I've always picked his brain about suspension stuff. Super helpful. And yeah, I mean, the amount of grip and chassis stiffness that a good, good set of you know, aftermarket suspension will do for a bike is pretty, pretty night and day. That's one of the aspects where you can ride the stock RS660 and you can see the potential in it. You can just go, okay, engineers built this thing knowing it was going to a racetrack in some capacity, whether it's for track day dudes that just want a bike to rip on and have fun, or it was actually going to race. But 
you could sense that. And with the aftermarket suspension, it's it's a big step forward. Not that the stock bike is bad. I I rode it um last year at the racetrack, had a grand old time. It's a blast on the racetrack in stock trim. What you're getting with that aftermarket suspension, obviously in the Trofeo, or if you were to do this to your, your own RS660, you're just getting much more compliance through the stroke. So it's it the, the damping is far more controlled. You have a much wider range of adjustment as well. And beyond that, you're creating more mechanical grip. The spring rates are higher. Um, you know, everything is just much stiffer and that translates through everything. I mean, not only is the, the riding position more aggressive, but the body work gives you more sensitivity. Um, you know, everything speaks to a performance only objective when it's built in this trim. So, you know, going through, you know, turn two into turn three, it's a flat corner. You know, you, you got to carry some good roll speed through there, but you have to understand that turn three at Laguna is still a flat turn. You have no positive canterbur to really support you, but between the Superbike SC1 slicks, um, you know, the Pirelli slicks are incredibly grippy tires. Basically any slick from the big four right now, you know, your Pirellis, your Michelins, your Dunlops, your Bridgestones, you're going to have a good time. <laughs> so that that's kind of like a non-issue, but the Pirellis are particularly well matched for this bike, in my opinion. Um, you know, I was able to get through that corner a lot more expeditiously, we'll say, than before. Now going into turn four, kind of same deal. You know, with the suspension, turn four is always a tricky thing for me because you can carry much more roll speed into turn four than than you would turn three. However, turn four is prior like you got to prioritize the exit because you need that that short shoot into turn five so you got to really be cooking through there and turn four is kind of hairy because you come at it with a lot of roll speed and you know on a on a lightweight bike like an inter 400 or something else like i'm pretty much pinned through there um and you know on a middleweight bike you're sort of like uh, i don't know if i should be but i'm sure the the actual moto america guys they they're probably damn near are they're probably rolling off just as they tip in and then they i can hear them getting on the gas super early way earlier than i do <laughs> so there's that um and just the what i notice is just the compliance of this thing so yeah it feels stiff and you know yada 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 it feels race bikey but you can just point it wherever you need to go it's like i need to like i'm i'm drifting off the apex or you know off my line all you got to do is sort of just look, dip your shoulder and just bring the thing back in on the brakes. And it's, it just does it. And that's just something, something that you really don't get, you know, on, on standard bikes. And again, the R660 is extremely compliant and it's super forgiving. Uh, this just sharpens that blade to a, to a high point, we'll say. Coming into down, down into turn two, you're hard on the brakes really hard downhill after coming from really top speed what's the stability like on the brakes is the chassis feel pretty good yeah absolutely so kind of going back to the ecu as well if you remember we mentioned that the new strategies had a lessened uh engine braking i think that's super beneficial because parallel twins like v twins 
they make a considerable amount of compression braking or engine braking, whatever you like to call it. And it's something that we tend to forget because we hide a lot of different engine configurations. And then the, the first time you, you know, back through the gears and you really spike the RPMs and you're like, Ooh, Oh, okay. Now that's something that the stock bike by comparison is not as proficient in when, when compared to the Trofeo. So yes, you're coming into turn two. That's an extremely hard braking zone, which because it's so long, it doesn't really seem like it is, but man, turn two is pretty brutal just on like almost any bike. You know, it's obviously worse on a, on a leader bike. It's on a, on a true 600 super sport. It's pretty hardcore. It's pretty hardcore on this thing too. Like even when I raced Laguna on my 400, you're, you're braking extremely hard. Like even on a 400, everyone's like, Oh, but you don't really break on lightweight bikes. It's like, eh, what do you do there? So, <laughs> turn two, you do. <laughs> so, you know, I don't really care who you are or what bike you're on. It's like that, that turns gnarly. And um, yeah, so stability. Because you have that extra support in the front end, the extra compliance, you have the extra grip from running slicks. And this bike actually comes from the dealership floor with SC3s, which is your Pirelli track day tire. So it's not exactly a stone's throw away from the slicks we were running. The only reason I ran slicks is because it had standard street tires on it when they were just displaying the bike, you know, as it's at. So they, it's essentially when you watch MotoGP, for some reason, they have uh, Michelin Road 5s on the tire on their, their MotoGP race bikes to just roll them around. Same concept. They weren't actually going to use them. They just had them there to roll the thing around. So, or they'll put reins like wets on there to just roll them around. Anyway, you get the idea. So, yeah, stability is definitely there. And you're going to notice that in a couple spots. So, turn five, that's another super important area. You can just chuck the bike in there because positive camber, right? You just huck the thing in, boom, done, up into turn five. That's probably my favorite turn at Laguna Seca. Then you have that really tricky turn six. For me, that's where stability is crucial because it's that huge G out. And, you know, riding stock bikes through there, you can start rubbing parts, you know, bottoming stuff out. Um, I remember the last time I rode a KTM Super Duke R. Uh, so this was in maybe 18. I vividly remember hitting things like my feet the rear sets you know and that's not a knock on the bike it's just it happens you know it, it's yeah, a, that's a that's a serious g out there. yeah and everyone goes oh the corkscrew like it's scary honestly turn six is the scariest turn on that track for me i i genuinely kind of have to think about that one the most uh and it's weird because it seems so innocuous on paper but it's it's not if you're cresting over hill so not a blind entry truly, but your, I, I would say where you need to start turning in, you actually kind of tip in just over the crest and you start initiating that turn. So I, yeah, I guess it's a blind entry, but not like in the traditional sense. It feels like it, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, and then there's the corkscrew. The corkscrew for me is kind of a non-issue because it is a slower turn. For me, anyway, I don't know for you, but whatever. <laughs> so... You know, you're really scrubbing <laughs> off a lot of speed. And then I tend to get the bike almost just a, a straight down the corkscrew. A lot of people really continue their turn like down the hill. I tend to get the bike rotated 
not like spinning up the rear or anything, but I just get like turned and then just sort of shoot straight down the hill. Um, so no quest, no, no problems there <laughs> stock bike or on the race bike, the race bike just tightens everything up. And then, you know, rainy, rainy's a gnarly turn downhill, slightly negative camber. Um, you know, the curbing can be interesting and, uh, you got to have a lot of good grip. Um, so, you know, that's where that suspension comes in. It just like absolutely underscores and highlights the, the chassis and its strengths and the things that we knew were there in stock form. And you're like, Oh man, you know, even if I were to like, just change the spring rates for me, for my weight, that would be a big step in the, in the, in the direction. Um, and that's something to say too. Every time we talk about a bike, we're always reviewing it from, from our specific perspective. Like you could be 150 pounds. You're going to have some pretty different opinions about the chassis. Um, you know, the, our engine opinions will probably be the same, but your experience with the suspension is not going to be the same as mine. You know, I'm somewhere in the 180 pound range plus gear easily crest into 200 and, you know, there you have it. You know, we're going to have some different, different experiences. Um, that said the chassis is super strong. And so you, you kind of boil everything down and you go, okay, 21 grand, you know, that's, that's, a, that's Tuono V4 money. You know, what am I doing? This is, this has two less cylinders. It's like, it's not apples and oranges. You're, you're, you're at this point comparing apples and cinder blocks. Like it's, totally disparate. This is a focused thing, albeit a niche product, right? But it's focused. And it just kind of proves like how awesome track slash race bikes are. Cause yeah, I mean, you convert anything into race trim and it's like, dude, this is sick. And I just get super excited about race bikes anyway, because for me, it's always been that that true vision of what the designer wanted to see, you know, they, they build this beautiful, you know, like clay mold. And, you know, you can see since Miguel uh, Galuzzi is, he lives in Pasadena and we've actually met him, which is pretty, pretty crazy to think about. Honestly, it's like, I, I guess the motorcycle equivalent of like meeting, um, I can't think of any like classic rock names because I don't listen to classic rock, but like whoever the singer of the Rolling Stones is, that guy. Yeah. Like Jagger or Jimmy Page or one of those yeah. guys, Robert. Yeah. Meeting yeah. yeah, cool. someone important and yeah. we're like fangirling <laughs> over Miguel Galuzzi. He invented the monster yeah. and the RSV4 and a bunch sure. of other bikes that we love. So, sure. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, you know, 21 grand and you get a, it's not a turnkey bike. That's actually improper. It, it doesn't have a key anymore. It has a, a comical like button inside where the, the key would go in the tank. And it essentially just looks like an eject button or something from Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> and that you just press that bike turns on, hit the starter and boom off to the races. Oh, there you go. And yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible because, you know, again, this is a niche market. A few brands at this point are really engaging in this sort of thing. You can get 
uh, fully prepped bikes from Ducati course. You can get bikes from a couple other sources. Um, if I understand, you know, there's GYTR, uh, so Yamaha, that's their performance thing. You can get the R6 through them. You can also get a GYTR R1 that's track prep slash race prepped. Costs a pretty penny, equally badass. And then, um, you know, on the other end of it, then you're going boutique. Then you're going Kramer, you know, which is a straight up race bike. Doesn't even have a VIN number. <laughs> so, um, and that's a whole separate thing. That is a whole nother level. So, you know, at the end of the day, I'm super impressed with the RS660 in race trim. You know, the Trofeo was built so it could go racing. And it's done that. It's done that in Moto America Twins Cup. And it's basically been the bike to be on because it is the, we'll say, the most easily race outfit bike on the market right now. The YZFR7, it won a championship in 22 in the Twins Cup. That said, and as much as I like the little R7, the bikes they're riding in Moto America are like almost not R7s at this point. They are so heavily modified that it's insane um, what they're doing to those things and how far they're taking them. Whereas the Aprilia, they're, yeah, they're modified. Like they have suspension and stuff like that. And, but it's, I mean, when they, when they raced in 21 and got the title, it's kind of a stock bike. They just sort of, they took more off than they put on. So kind of testament to what's going on there. Granted, the R660 engine compared to the MT-07 engine slash YZF-R7 engine, they make totally different horsepower values. So Moto America, to balance things out, you can build up the R7's engine way more um, than you would in R660. And it needs to, because it needs to match horsepower. But that's a whole different ballgame. So, you know, without getting into the weeds. Point is, there's, point, there's tons of potency in that base package. And this just highlights what... I have a feeling Aprilia engineers always wanted to do anyway. So they wanted to race a spec class, which they do in Italy. And then they also wanted to have it participate, you know, in, in global uh, racing initiatives. So, you know, things like the twins class. And if you watch Moto America, that's probably, probably the most heavy impacted class at the moment. And, and honestly, it offers some of the best racing next to the, the, uh, the junior cup, which is always chaos. Um, those are honestly my two favorite series in Moto America. Superbike racing, yeah, it's cool, but whatever. Twins Cup, Junior Cup, it's great. Moto America is doing a good job without getting wanted to get into all of that. The racing in Moto America and across all classes is actually pretty good. So yeah, yeah, you know, if you yeah, you're 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 right. I mean, the RS660 Trofeo is essentially a really good base bike, and they've simply taken off all the all the various sort of you know dot street and emissions crap and just sort of allowed the bike to be what the designers actually want it to be and they've just sort of released it into the wild and and yeah i mean you know race bikes track track bikes they're they're stiff they're precise they do exactly what you want and if they're really good and you get that connection with the machine i don't know about you but i start i start riding the thing i start to feel like anything's possible and I think, oh, you know, I'll push it a little harder into this corner. And, you know, if I lose the front, I can probably catch it, you know. Not truth of this, I probably haven't got a hope, but it does get you feeling like that. It gets the confidence up and there's nothing like getting into that zone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you gel with a bike, which is 
you know, um, speaking on a personal level with Aprilia fuel tanks, Kawasaki fuel tanks, they both follow this sort of a philosophy where they're flared up and you can really hook into them. So ergonomics, like we mentioned, are super important, but for whatever reason, those are two manufacturers that do fuel tanks very well. And it makes that connection much faster for me. And that comfortability uh, is super important. Um, you know what, Honda, Honda does a, a good fuel tank too. Man. But yeah, it, it once when you click with something, yeah, you start getting those things like, oh, oh, I can do this. And then you get passed by like a 14 year old <laughs> club racer and you're like, dude. Anything's possible. But yes. Um, and then you try to chase that club racer and you know sometimes it works out but yeah at the end of the day you're you're buying a, a 337 pound dry you know bike um race bikes are weird in the sense that they usually get weighed dry because you're I don't know, racing rules i don't get it whatever anyway this thing's below 400 pounds ostensibly um you know making 110 odd horsepower and it's <laughs> yeah uh, yeah, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Hey, thanks, Nick. I really appreciate it. It sounds like a really fantastic bike. Just awesome. If uh, those lucky enough to do track days on a regular basis and have got 21 grand burning a hole in their pocket, it sounds like I need to get down to the, the Aprilia dealer. Yeah. I, there's actually one there right now, but not even kidding. Our local <laughs> one in Santa Monica, there's one sitting there. I've, I've had thoughts. Anyway. <laughs> I'll bet. I'll bet. All right. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Talk to you later. Okay. In the second segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with teen racing sensation Kayla Yakov. Kayla made a name for herself in the smaller classes as she was growing up, but having just turned 16 a few weeks ago, she was able to move up a class and race 600 Supersport for Titler's Racing at the last Moto America race of this year. In case you're thinking this may be hype, she finished on the podium in third place, having started the race 13th on the grid. That's a heck of an accomplishment for a first race in the most competitive class of them all. TJ chats with Kayla about growing up and where it all started. Yeah, so when I first started, um, actually on my mom's Facebook page, I uh, just came across one of her memories, and it was from 12 years ago, where uh, she she had a video of one of my first times ever riding a bike. Um, so that would be what? I was uh, just turning four. Um, wow. And yeah, I had a little little Suzuki JR50 and uh, just riding around the house. And uh, yeah, that was the first time I believe I've ever, or I ever rode a motorcycle. Um, and yeah, from there, it, it took off. So you started when you were four and you're 15 now or, or are you 16 yet? Yeah, I just turned 16, just a, about a month and a half ago. Oh, happy birthday, sweet 16. Thank you. So did you um, carry on? I mean, I, I can't believe that your whole childhood was obsessed with motorcycles. Maybe it was. And did you, how did it go? Did you try other vehicles? Did you kind of have a thing for just riding or did you start driving other things? I actually, yeah, I started uh, with uh, driving go-karts when I was, uh, I think, three years old. And um, it was fun. I had a lot of fun doing it, but it wasn't really, 
it wasn't that connection that I had. When I instantly got on a bike, I had a connection right away. And I didn't really feel like I had that. Obviously, I was three, so I don't remember much. But I do remember that as soon as I got on a bike, I knew that was that was what I wanted to do. And could you cycle before then? I don't know if you can remember that far back. I certainly can't. I don't think so. I mean, I rode a I rode a little Strider bike, the the bicycles without the without the pedals. Um, but yeah, that was that was the only thing I think I ever went on before riding a motorcycle. And were you in any sort of a racing environment? How did it come about that you got involved actually racing? Yeah, so my dad, my dad raced uh, cars and bikes um, for about 15 years. And, um, you know, he used to do a lot of uh, the regional rounds for, uh, for a series called FUSA when he was a bit younger than he is now and uh, before, certainly before I was born. Oh, right. Um, but yeah, he did that. And then he got into car racing. And so, you know, I just I kind of found some of his old articles in uh, one of our one of our um, magazines, Road Racing World. I found this article and that was kind of where it took off my my inspiration to ride. Wow, that's really amazing because of being so young. And do you remember your first race? Um, not really, but I, I do remember, um, you know, having conversations with him about it and I remember where it was, but just being super excited and just super enthusiastic about it. And I haven't, I hadn't really felt that about a lot of things and you're so young, it's so hard to go back to that, but you know, it was, it was a big thing for me. And obviously first race, I had only been on a bike for maybe a couple of months, um, but yeah, I had a lot of fun doing it. And um, I assume after my first race and my dad seeing how much fun I had, I just kept going at it. Okay. He must have been delighted. I mean, to be able to, you know, have your child sort of take over <laughs> yeah. where you left off. <laughs> For sure. And and your mum, was she at all or is she sort of riding or on track or anything? No, my mom isn't. She, um she helped my dad out for a long time when he was racing and um you know would always be in the pitch with him basically was uh the one pulling off the tire warmers <laughs> in the stands uh but you know more now she's she's just a huge supporter um of me and uh she's never really um ridden a motorcycle herself I don't think she ever has honestly maybe when she was uh younger but no she's uh she's a big supporter of it though that's fantastic. I mean, a lot of parents won't even let their children come age 16 or 18 start learning to ride, but it's great if she's been yeah. right behind you from that early. Yep. Um, and then how did it progress? I mean, I'm amazed you can remember that far back. I can't remember when I was three or four or five. Um, how did it go from there? How do you, you start to get involved in serious professional racing? Yeah, so... Um, I started doing flat track. That was uh, the first thing I did. So uh, when I was four, I, I did flat track and then I got into motocross um, probably around five or six and then into road racing at seven. Um, and, you know, at that point I was doing all three. Obviously it became too much where we're traveling all the time, chasing, you know, rounds for, for each series. But uh, it kind of came to the that we needed to pick one or two and uh, focus on those. 
And so I picked road racing and at the time, um, I believe also motocross. And uh, yeah, I did I did that for a while. And then um, once I started getting really serious with road racing and uh, competitive, we stuck to it. And that's what we've been focusing on. Wow, how amazing. And were you racing other children back then? Yeah, what, so I was actually racing adults when I was uh, probably from when I started road racing. I started racing adults pretty pretty early on after that um, because a lot of our mini GP series, um, you know, you have guys that will come out on, you know, little bikes and they'll come out and race us. So it was um, – yeah, from, from a young age, I was always racing with the, the adults. That is astounding. Absolutely amazing. And were you sort of coming last or were you being competitive and getting past people? Yeah, I have uh, I have a lot of pictures of me on the podium with, uh, you know, there's one that goes around a lot is me in the middle and I'm probably three feet shorter than the other two guys next to me. So I was, uh, you know, doing pretty well with all those races. And, um, yeah, we, we'd go down to... Uh, this place called the Heron Compound, which was run by Josh Heron, who's a Moto America super sport or a super bike rider, I should say. Um, he just won the last race at Coda, but yeah, we'd uh, battle with him quite a bit and have a lot of fun down there. Um, and yeah, racing against adults was something I did from from the start. Oh, that is just—it's blowing my mind. That is amazing. I, I can't imagine from your point of view because you've always been going down this path. You're probably like, why is everyone on about how young I am? I'm just racing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's still kind of surprising because, you know, we have, uh, I've been racing against adults for so long. It's it's kind of like you, you grew up around people. Were you still um, going to school and doing other sort of children's things? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, up until actually the last... I'd say two and a half years I've been, I'd gone into school, you know, into my public schools and, um, you know, it got kind of got to the point where I started traveling to Europe, um, constantly traveling across the, the United States. So, um, at that point I was so far away from home. A lot of the time it was, uh, it became more obvious that we'd have to go to an online program that was still, uh, run through my school district but yeah we started doing that in the last uh, last few years and whenever I'm home I try to to be around my family my friends um, obviously I have a huge racing family and especially when I'm doing my Moto America rounds I have a lot of people that I've become really close friends with and uh, yeah so I, I think I get to do a fair bit of things that you'd say a normal teenager would do but obviously in my lifestyle it kind of comes with some sacrifices as well yes yeah of course but you've kept in touch you've still got your best buddies from school and that sort of thing of course amazing and where is home where did where did you um hail from uh so yeah i'm uh currently living in in pennsylvania so the east coast of the united states um and i was born around this area just in maryland virginia all of those but the last i'd say 10 years I've been here in Pennsylvania and uh, yeah so even even our closest racetrack is probably farther away than than most places are from you know say in Europe you go to one track to the other our closest track is probably uh, well I should say racetrack that um, our national series race is that is 
three and a half hours away. So we're a little little bit in the middle of nowhere, but you know, it's it's all part of it. Yeah, well, it's I mean, the USA is huge, so I can imagine. But um, as you say, Europe, you can sort of hop from one to the other, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we were surprised. We, uh, you know, this this last season, why should I say this season? I should say, uh, we we raced in Spain, and just it was it was crazy. You can go from from one track to the other in less than an hour. And be completely fine. You're, you know, you're sleeping in your own bed at night. It's uh, it's crazy the the difference. But you know, I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Yeah, that's the thing about travel. You, you grow to realize little things like that that you, you don't come into your head when you're just sort of stuck in one place. Yeah. So I'm just trying to progress up to date, which is not long, <laughs> long now. We're nearly <laughs> up to date. Um, how did you then start to? become professional I mean did you sort of sit and have a chat with your parents about it or did they come to you and say we're getting lots of interest do you remember how that panned out or did you suddenly find you were like racing in a more and more serious situation yeah it was um you know we started racing at uh the, the high club levels here in the U.S. and uh racing with some riders that had been in the Moto America series and doing well and we figured you know, as soon as I was age eligible for either Moto America or if we had an opportunity to go to Europe, I'd want to jump on it as quick as possible. And, um, you know, you say you see it all the time where guys would talk about, you know, if if only I got into it sooner. You see all these young kids riding the bikes now. So it's a whole new generation of kids coming up that were not bred for it. But, you know, you come out and you're straight, you're straight racing. And uh, yeah, so. As soon as I was uh, age eligible for Moto America Junior Cup, I went into the series. Um, same with the the Blue Carrera Three Cup in Europe, or European Cup, I should say. Um, went straight into that series as well. So, um, yeah, tons of traveling, especially my first year uh, professionally racing. And you know, obviously for us, we had only ridden on the club level, so it was definitely a big step, and we knew that going into it. Um, but obviously we saw it as my career and we wanted to, to keep growing it that way. Yeah, it would have been a learning curve for your parents then as, as obviously as well as yourself. So, but you you were keen. I'm just trying to work out if you felt kind of bamboozled into getting into the career of racing because you didn't know anything else or, or were you keen on, from the get-go? Oh, from the start, I was... Uh... I was I was ready to go. I mean, obviously going from, you know, just a regional championship that's competitive, but not not at the level that, you know, obviously I was going into. It was a, a, a big shock. And, you know, especially my first test in Europe, which was actually my first ever professional race was going to be on the world stage in front of the world superbike paddock and uh, all these riders that had been in in World Supersport 300 and other other very prestigious series, it was uh, definitely very intimidating. But um, you know, it, it it made me the writer I am now. And how old were you then? Kind of having to be thrown into that. Uh, I was 13. Wow, that is just astounding! I'm just really amazed. <laughs> and so that was your first race. Wasn't your first big professional race was Europe, and then you've ended up doing 
Europe and National American racing at the same time? Yeah, yeah. We uh, that first year in in twenty twenty one, we had uh, we were doing double duty, you know, doing Moto America as well as uh, the the Blue Crew European Cup, and um, you know, we'd have some rounds where I'd you know race one weekend at Aston and then have to come back and race at Laguna Seca with a nine hour time difference, you know, within that same week. So it was uh, definitely definitely a challenge in that sense but I've always been a little bit easier on on the time difference it I, to me it was just so much fun traveling and and learning more and more each weekend and do you feel you've kind of seen areas that you've been to or you've just seen tracks so far <laughs> like um you've been you know to, been to many different countries but have you seen anything yeah yeah, we, you know, when we did the European Championship, um, we went to uh, Misano, Aston, Donington Park, Most, uh, Magnicor, and, uh, you know, this year I've been to Spain, Italy, uh, for Mugello, and it, we've been so many places, and it's, you know, honestly, for me, I feel like I've gone to most of my bucket list tracks, and uh, to do that, while also exploring parts in Europe, you know, going into Barcelona, sightseeing in Paris, you know, do, doing things like that. It was, uh, it was great. I had so much fun doing it. And, um, you know, not only do I, not only do I enjoy racing, but I get to enjoy the, the travel as well. So when you get to a track, you, you sounds as though this has all been very quick. Um, have you had a chance to sort of make inroads into learning the tracks or do you sort of turn up fresh at most of these tracks yeah so like all of the tracks especially this past season um in in europe uh, i've had to learn really quickly and um you know even my first year in moto america and in the the blue crew european cup you don't have a lot of time to learn the tracks so i i eventually developed a process of learning them and uh Luckily, I've been pretty good at it, you know, especially this past year. I feel like all of my knowledge that I gained in that that 2021 season, learning probably over 15 tracks in one year, um, you know, I, I was able to put that to good use and learn a track in a day, race the next and understand that even though I have these time uh, constraints, I'm, I'm going to go out and do do what I know how to do. First of all, what was your first race that you won? Ooh. I don't know. <laughs> probably a flat track race. I'd probably say. Oh right, way back. Um, you, yeah, you said yeah. you were on the podium, but I didn't realize you'd you'd been winning races from way back then. Yeah, probably I'd say within my first year of uh, flat track racing, um, my first professional win was uh, at. Let's see, it was well. There was two. There was some controversy around the first one uh, due to some yellow flags and things. Um, I still consider that my first win, but uh, it happened, it, you know, it is what it is. But uh, my first win was still in that same year in 2022. So this past season, or last season, um, and that was in Washington State. And it was a, a really good race. A lot of good passing. Just, uh, I think it was one of my best rides. And so, yeah, that was my first, first official race win. And uh, that year I went on to win three or four others and uh yeah can you describe how it feels when you win oh, it's it's the best feeling in the world i mean knowing that 
you all of the hard work that you put in is paying off and um you're you're able to show your full potential especially when you have good equipment around you and a group good uh good team around you it just it feels great and it, it makes it makes all the hard times a lot easier yeah i guess you also must feel a bit responsible because you have sponsors and people who you have you're like queen bee and you have so many people around you doing things for you and getting you sort of pinpointing you towards the target you must feel hugely responsible yeah, exactly if you win it would be amazing of course, yeah. So um, you, you've you won championships as well. How many championships have you won? Man, uh, well, in, in the, our club series, I wouldn't be able to give you a number. It's been quite a while since I've, uh, I've thought about that. But um, I'd say probably around 10 to 12 national club championships um on the professional level on the professional level um i finished third in the moto america junior cup series only i believe seven points behind first so it was a really close championship at the end um i had that that season was pretty tough so to come back in the last few rounds and, and finish only seven points back was was huge for me um this or last year i should say in the um in the Blue Crew Super Finale, I finished second in that that little championship that we did. It was a one race thing, but uh, both points from both races went towards that championship. So I got uh, a second or third in that one. Then in um, the other professional series was this past year or this past season in the uh, R7 Spanish R7 Cup. I only did three out of the six races, and uh, in the the three rounds I did, I was able to win three races and uh, finished fourth in the championship. And with only three races, was was pretty cool to do. You're right, other. That's just incredible. And this is racing against adults. This is the amazing thing. You probably don't think. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you probably don't think about yourself as being so young. For everybody else, it's just incredible. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for me, obviously, my biggest thing has always been I'm racing against um, people, especially it doesn't it doesn't matter who I don't you know, I don't really care about the fact that most of them are adults or most of them are are other guys, not not girls like me. I mean, I feel like um, I've always just seen other people as, as obstacles and, you know, I'm going to do whatever it takes to to win. And do you all sort of help each other with tactics and track knowledge and that sort of thing? Yeah, of course. I mean, I've I've had a lot of really good people uh, from competitors to teammates, and um, you know, even my rivals. It's everyone is is really nice and uh, you know welcoming in in all ways. But obviously, you're gonna have you're gonna have some battles that get heated. But everyone's uh, pretty mellow headed. So um, tell us what you're racing currently. Yeah, currently uh, I just switched to the the super sport category here in in the United States with the Moto America Championship Series. So uh, this last round at New Jersey Motorsports Park this weekend, uh, I'll be I'll be racing that. Um, hopefully a good weekend for us. I just joined this team uh, this their last round, 
at Coda, and uh, it's going great so far. So that's that's currently what I'm racing. Um, this past year, I've been racing the Yamaha R7 in both the Moto America Twins Cup Championship as well as the Spanish R7 Championship. Um, and yeah, we'll see what what comes. We might have some some more stuff going on later this year, but um, as for next year, my plans are to to uh, race in the Supersport category in the United States, as well as maybe some other series in Europe. Wow, it's so exciting. And it's a huge amount to organize. Is this still down to your, your mom and dad, or do you have a manager now? Uh, my dad and I go over a lot of our, our offers and, and deals. Um, we have worked with a manager a couple of times. Um, we've just got one actually this year and, um, obviously we run things by him as well. Um, but really right now it's, it's kind of just me and my dad. Um, obviously as you grow, uh, more and more in the sport, it's going to be less and less our issues and more onto, um, our team, I guess you should say. Um, but yeah, right now we're, we're just going through everything, try to, try to find the best opportunities for me and uh, what we think is, is going to really progress me and, and get me to my goals. And you also have to look for your own sponsorship, presumably. Is that that's something that must be pretty time consuming or do you end up meeting a lot of people through being at the tracks? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, I'm running my own social media. I run all of our, our marketing, all of our, you know, sponsorship, if we could do that. Obviously, my dad helps me with that quite a bit um but yeah it's it's tough because you know honestly for next year it's it's going to be difficult you know money money is always a big big factor of everything and yeah um, it's an expensive you know, career just, for sure of course yeah and um you know that's that's kind of our if we had a barrier that would be the only thing but i think uh right now we're we're gonna try to do what we can hopefully uh, our results this past year um, are good for, for something good next year. And so far we have some good offers and opportunities. So, um, you know, I hope I hope that does well for us as well. Do you have um, a pinnacle that you're aiming for or are you going to just see how how your sort of career pans out? Yeah, for me, I think uh, my my ideal, my goal uh, would to be uh, would would be to to race in either World Superbike um, or you know if an opportunity comes in the MotoGP paddock that would be amazing. Um, you know, like I said, we have a lot of offers going in both of those directions, and uh, you know it's it's kind of a matter of what what's best for me. And uh, trying to figure out, you know, what what path would suit my riding style the best, uh, especially considering my background now. Um, but yeah, I think my my goal would be so far to go to the World Superbike Paddock. Obviously, racing in in any um, world championship would be amazing, and that's that's obviously the goal. And uh, no matter what it takes to get there, if that means going through Moto America to to go into superbike, to go to world superbike, you know, for, for me, I, I'm just kind of looking at it with an open mind. And, um, you know, that's, like I said, that's my goal and uh, I'll do what it takes to get there. Right. I'm sure you will. Yeah. How exciting. So, um, are you now 
of an age where you can learn to <laughs> sounds a bit crazy learn to drive and go on the roads yeah I just uh like I said I turned 16 just like a month and a half ago I should say and um got my permit just a couple of days after that and started driving around the the road for the first time I should say um legally on the road <laughs> we um yeah so it's it's good I'm having a lot of fun you know just enjoying the things here at home while also uh <laughs> racing motorcycles on the side <laughs> <laughs> yeah you must be um so involved the whole time with motorcycles do you have any other sort of um I don't want to say hobbies but interests you know you, you obviously see all your mates when you get back home what sort of things do you do in your downtime yeah aside from you know obviously the the focus on on racing uh I try to whenever I'm home you know I, I play guitar I play bass um I I like to ride my bicycle a lot cycle um BMX kind of some some freestyle riding in the in the skate skate world um you know i try to hang out with my sister quite a bit my brother um i i just try to be involved with uh with them especially considering i'm gone for a lot of the year um whenever i'm home i take that time and and music is huge for me so i, I think that's probably my my biggest hobby so each time that you um going to a new class do your sponsors go with you or do you have to find new sponsors yeah i have i have a lot of uh sponsors that that sponsor me personally as well as my team um you know mission has been huge for us especially the last few years um honestly mission and and medallia have, have made it possible for me to race and given me the opportunity to uh, to ride at the level I am and, and to win some of these races. I, I mean, it's, that's, that's really what's made the difference. You know, America is huge. So going across the country is the biggest cost throughout the entire year. Um, but yeah, the, the team, obviously Titler Cycle for, for stepping up and allowing me to, to move to super sport, um, in Spain, YVS Sabadell for allowing me to, to race there. Um, all of my personal sponsors, the ones that keep me safe. Um, earlier this year, I had an injury in, in testing and, uh, honestly with, without my gear, I probably would have been hurt much more, um, Revit, Alpine Stars boots, HJC, they all, they all keep me safe, keep me going. And, um, obviously it's part of racing. You have those crashes and sometimes yes, yeah. you have to deal, yeah, you have to deal with the, the injuries that come with it. And, um, everything's been been pretty smooth sailing especially especially this year um after the injuries so um yeah those are those are the big ones and, and all my personal sponsors uh for allowing us to do this each year it's it's been huge and that's the only way we're doing it have you had people who've sponsored you right from the start who are still with you now yeah there's a, i mean even when i started in in moto america and before moto america we've had a lot of uh huge supporters just from from a fan perspective and also from um you know a financial perspective and um obviously that's that's huge for me i love going to the racetrack and being able to talk to people that have been there for me since since day one and um you know that 
they give me that motivation. And even just the fans that come out and race or come out to watch the races, I see some people with my shirts um, online. You can buy my shirts, my hats, all my merchandise, and that, that makes a big difference. When you look up in the stands and you see people with, uh, you know, your flags, it, it makes you want to go much faster and, and put on a good show. But, yeah, it's, it's great. Just gives you a bit of a boost. For sure. As laypersons, I don't race. I've never raced a ride on the road. Appreciate, I mean, we watch the racing and we really appreciate any companies that sponsor the racing and make it happen. I mean, I know it's it's kind of advertising for them, but of course they have to choose where to spend their advertising money. And any time a company is sponsoring motorcycle racing, we're like, yes, <laughs> we love it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, and that's that's what makes it possible is is the people behind it that that fund that fund these things and um you know obviously the fans play a big part of that keeping the series going and then you have the the series sponsors that make it possible for the for the series to even run and that that gives us as racers the, the opportunity to to do what we love so it's it's always appreciated something funny did happen when we were, we were at an event in uh, Kota with my husband. We were, we were looking at the sponsor Wag Bar, obviously your sponsor. And um, I had just assumed it was, to me, wives and girlfriends came to mind because that's an expression for Wag. And I thought Wag Bar was a sort of nightclub, a place you could go and get a beer. I said to my husband, you know, we'll have to find out where the Wag Bar is and go and have a beer. He's like, what do you want about? That's a health, a health bar that you eat. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The, um, you know, my previous team was sponsored by it. It was their like, uh, you know, their title sponsor, and um, they they pretty much helped out the team alone. But um, yeah, they it's it's like this this wagyu beef bar, and I had so many people come up to me saying, "Oh, I thought it was for dogs. I thought it was like a wag like a tail <laughs> tail something, something like that." <laughs> yeah, or like you know, like you said, like a nightclub or like a bar. <laughs> I was, and you know why why are you supporting a bar you're like 16 15 and I'm like it's not it's not what it is <laughs> trust me it's not what it is but it worked you're obviously educating people and now we all know that <laughs> you can go yeah, and get a healthy <laughs> snack called a wag bar <laughs> yeah so it's working <laughs> do you have um lots of fans coming up to you when they can and uh you know saying hello um particularly girls do you have girls who now want to race because they've seen you yeah, yeah, I've been super fortunate. You know, obviously, um, as you get higher and higher in the ranks, there's more and more people that that uh, recognize you, and it's it's kind of a surreal, real feeling. Um, you know, when you have fans come up to you and they tell you that you know you inspire them, and that's that's such a huge motivation, and it you know it makes you want to do better, not only for for yourself, but also to show other people that that you can do it. And uh, like you said, with, with young girls coming up to me, telling me that, you know, I inspire them to ride, I inspire them to, to keep racing. It's, it's, it's not only huge for me, but I'm glad that I'm able to, to put that impact on people. And, um, you know, it's, that's a goal of mine, obviously, to, to race at that level. You know, you have people like girls like Maria Herrera, Anna Carrasco that are doing it. And world championship level and, and I hope to be the next one as well to to show girls that it is possible and you can you can go out there and you can race with the guys and you're going to be you know just as competitive and put in the work so 
it's uh it's huge I I enjoy it so much it is yeah that's fantastic you are such a great ambassador that's amazing thank you um well I'm gonna say thanks for your time because I know that you're always it's difficult even fitting in a time slot to have a chat you're always doing something um just wish you all the best of luck and you know if we can do anything for you here at ultimate motorcycling let us know and uh just thanks very much for your time today thank you very much it was, it was great speaking with you and uh i hope i hope everything goes well thanks thanks kayla take care bye thank you bye